Welcome to the third season of Pushing Pediatrics, the ultimate podcast for pediatric physical therapists studying for the pediatric board specialty exam. We remain dedicated to providing guidance and support to pediatric physical therapists looking to excel in their field. We understand the challenges you face while studying for and passing the certification exam, but with our expert guidance and unwavering support, we are confident that you can achieve your goals. So let's dive into this journey towards becoming a board certified pediatric physical therapist together. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put in the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content, and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we've stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. I'm going to mute myself. Welcome back, everybody. This season, we've been doing a little bit more about finding some experts in our own community to help us through some of the more challenging and specific areas of pediatric physical therapy to try to get you guys ready for this exam. So today we are with Emily Spath, and she is going to walk us through everything we need to know about practicing in the NICU. So Emily, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your experience in the NICU? anything you want to tell us. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. I am a doctor of physical therapy and certified neonatal therapist. I worked in a level four NICU for many years and also worked in a transdisciplinary clinic with speech and with a dietitian, where we followed infants for the first six months after they left the NICU. It was called the neonatal transition clinic. So it supported the baby's transition to the NICU follow-up clinic from their date of discharge. So that window that was sort of missing, which we are actually gonna talk about an article that covers that topic. But uh, we saw them six months after they graduated um, and then they would go to any other clinic that they needed. So for those of you who are less familiar with the levels of the NICU, a level one NICU is a nursery. Babies are 35 weeks and up and are physiologically stable. Level two is a special care nursery where babies have to be at least 32 weeks and at least 1500 grams at birth. And they can provide a little bit of CPAP for less than 24 hours. But if they need more respiratory support, they will go to a level three, which provides pediatric subspecialties, intubation, ventilation, advanced imaging, and then maybe a level four, which is the highest level of acuity. And it is a regional NICU, which would provide sur surgical repair for complex congenital conditions. Um, usually there are really specific specialties in a level four NICU, and it's also usually paired with a level one trauma center. So people are helicoptered in. 
I'm going to jump in really quick here and just remind people that in Campbell, they have like a box that goes through all of the NICU levels. So if you need a little bit more, I actually think Emily did a great job of kind of paring that down a little bit and helping us maybe come up with just quick ways to remember the differences. But if you want to do more, it's definitely in Campbell. So check that out. Absolutely. So, and we just started sneaking in the the studying right away. <laughs> but during my time becoming a certified neonatal therapist, I also became a certified trauma-informed professional and certified in neonatal touch and massage, as well as the SOFI method, which is supporting oral feeding of fragile infants. <clears throat> now, learning how to support bottle feeding infants in the NICU was really important, but as a physical therapist, I was in charge of getting families into skin to skin for the first time, usually with like a 23 week old baby. And I realized that skin to skin is the first step towards breastfeeding. So because I was usually in there helping facilitate that skin to skin, I also ended up facilitating the first latch. And that led to me becoming an international board certified lactation consultant. And now I run my own business called Be Well Baby PDX, where I support families and their babies preconception through postpartum with physical therapy, lactation support, and yoga. So that's kind of doing it all, bringing it all together. <laughs> that's so awesome. We are so excited to kind of just have all of that come together and try to help make sure that we understand what goes into the NICU. I can already see all of this coming together for helping understand the transition to early intervention, but also all of the care that goes into the NICU, which is so much beyond caring for the infant, right? And I think that we've talked about this a lot this season, which is this whole concept of family-centered care, the whole concept of, you know, the transdisciplinary model, which again, the APTA has a fact sheet about this. All of this stuff is a very, very important. And so I think that we're going to get into a lot of a really, really great studying. So I think that this is so good. And at the end, Emily's going to talk a little bit more, I think, about um, the Be Well Baby PDX. So and she'll give you all of her links and we'll link that all in the show notes for you as well. But lots of really great like bring it all together content. And I don't know if we're going to have a ton of time to talk about trauma this episode. I don't know how much you got into it later, but I'm hoping next season we can have you back to talk more about that because just looking through Campbell, we've talked about this on our season. The chapter two in Campbell is a completely new chapter where they've started to bring in this trauma-informed care. And I'm seeing in so much research now this kind of concept coming in. And I always tell people when we start to see that research pop up, you're going to start to see that come up on the exam in the in the years that follow. So Hopefully you like us enough to maybe come back and talk more about that because I think that that would be really, really great. And if anywhere you have some little ideas that you can pop in throughout this, Emily, feel free to. I will. Absolutely. Every story that I share probably has some aspect of trauma-informed care in it. So it's really kind of incredible how once you start looking, it's everywhere and it makes perfect sense that it's coming up in the research now. All right, Emily. So let's talk about the NICU models of care and just kind of go through what we need to know. So the NICU is a super unique place. And I know we were just talking about the transdisciplinary model and there's a fact sheet on that. The fact is that there are so many disciplines that are required for the health of the baby. And 
the NICU becomes this sort of ethereal place where every single NICU has a different look and a different model. There are some NICUs where OT, PT, and speech have the same role. Everybody feeds babies. Everybody does developmental care. There are some NICUs where, like the NICU that I came from, OT and PT have the same job. And then speech does exclusively feeding and swallow studies. There are some NICUs where OT, PT, and speech have completely different jobs, and the baby might be seen by all three disciplines. So it's just really vast. And then there's also, you know, every other discipline in the hospital who is required for the health of that baby and the family. So we just talked about family-centered care. There it's really the therapist's ability to help parents read their baby's cues when you think about the physical therapist's job. So the physical therapist plays a huge role in the parent's ability to bond with their baby. And when you think about family-centered care in that way, the parents really become the extension of the patient and we have to bring them in. And as physical therapists, we are uniquely positioned to observe the behaviors of these babies who are maybe sick, maybe born prematurely, and we are experts in neuromotor development. So we get to be the ones who can gently guide parents towards a better understanding of their premature baby's needs. And it's such an honor to have that role when you're thinking about working in the NICU. So one of the biggest hurdles for parents, especially parents of NICU babies, is really becoming that parent and stepping into that role and feeling that the baby is actually theirs and not the NICUs or the nurses. And bonding and attachment in the first months of life are critical. So one of the things that is a clear example of really providing family-centered care is changing a diaper. So a lot of the time you'll see nurses just say, oh, I'll do it. You're going to have plenty of time to do diaper changes throughout this baby's life. But the parents are probably in there wondering, is my baby going to survive? Will this be the only chance that I have to change this diaper? And so as a physical therapist coming in, what a diaper change might look like is empowering the parent. So instead of saying something like, oh, don't worry, I'll show you how to do this, and then you can do it next time. You'll walk the parent through. So for example, there was this baby who probably was only going to be in the NICU for a few days, and the parents were in complete shock and in tears, and everyone who works in the NICU is just like, oh, this baby's fine. They're going home in a couple days. They just needed to be observed or whatever. But to the family, this is the most traumatic event in their life. So as a physical therapist coming into that, you would interact with the parents and be there with them, with their pain. And then when you're offering to change the diaper, this is what happened to me in this particular scenario. I offered for one of the parents to change the diaper and the mom said, well, I've already changed one, so he should change it. And the dad said, oh, no, I, ca I can't, I can't, I can't. And so, she, and the mom started getting a little bit frustrated. 
And I said, why don't we do it together? And I will show you a way to do it so that there's no chance that you could possibly hurt your baby. Because that's usually the biggest fear that parents have. So you're lifting from the hips. You're going to slide the diaper gently under and slowly wipe, you know, and really giving the parents all of the information that they need in that moment and nothing more because everyone is so overwhelmed when they first come to the NICU. So that's just a good example of really bringing the family in and being there with them and guiding them through a diaper change without, you know, forcing them to do it and also without just doing it for them. I think that's awesome. And this is just such a great example of, you know, one, it almost brings tears to my eyes because these moments are just so hard and so challenging, I'm sure, for the families. But also when we look at this, because ultimately my job is to jump into Emily's talk talk and discuss where the test is, is I think in the NICU, you really have to read the questions very carefully because kind of like Emily talked about, each NICU is going to have its own flavor of how it runs and none of them are necessarily right or wrong, right? We talked about this in the school setting where lots of times there's a lot of schools that aren't actually following the laws and that's unfortunate, but when it comes to the test, you really do need to understand the law. I think in the NICU, it's different because I don't think any of these are right or wrong. They're just different. So I would really suggest in a NICU question that you're really going to need to read that question carefully and understand all of these components that Emily's talking about, and then use that information to answer the question the best that you can. So that's what is, how are we putting the family and the child at the center of this question? How are we making sure that we are, you know, limiting how much information we're giving them? I think that's the type of stuff that you're going to maybe see from a NICU outside of the fact that there might be, you know, lab values and things like that, that you need to know. But when it comes to this kind of family-centered care model, I think really reading the question carefully is going to help you start to narrow down the answers. Mm -hmm. And making sure that in when you're looking for the answer, that you're thinking about what is the role of the family here? And how are we going to bring them in to the conversation? 100%. I love that. So next, let's talk about the synactive theory of development. Because I love I, this. This is so I, great because we always talk about theories and no one knows anything about them. So this is great. Please teach us about some theories. Absolutely. This is one of those, those theories that anybody who works in the NICU and who's a certified neonatal therapist will know about. And it's in Campbell. So we need to know it. It was developed by Heidi Alls, and she's amazing. And I had the privilege of like fangirling her over her at a conference and I'm still, you know, just, oh. but she um, came up with these four subsystems and they build on each other. It makes perfect sense when you think about it. So first babies have to have autonomic stability, right? Their vitals need to be stable. That's the base. Then they have to regulate or control their motor behavior. That's the second step. Next. They organize their behavioral states and responsiveness through their interaction with social and physical environment. So making eye contact, that sort of thing. That's the third level. And then four, they will orient to animate and inanimate objects. So 
They might look towards a contrast card, something that's black and white, that that sort of orientation to something other than them. And it really makes perfect sense. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How can you be looking at another human and interacting with them if you can't breathe? You know, so that's a really good way to think about this inactive theory. It's just they have to have autonomic stability. They have to be able to move their body and control their motor behavior. They organize their behavioral state and then they can orient to you. All right. So NIDCAP was developed by Heidelise Alls with her theory at the base of it. NIDCAP is the Newborn Individualized Developmental Care and Assessment Program. And it involves weekly observations that lead to a plan for that specific baby, personalized to the baby. And it is shown to decrease length of stay for babies in the NICU. NIDCAP requires extensive training and is a really incredible program. And that's kind of what you need to know about it for the purposes of your exam. There's also, this is just like a little nugget for you. There's also the SENSE program, which is not in the Campbell chapter, but it was developed by Bobby Pineda, an occupational therapist. And it's not a program that comes up with a plan like NIDCAP. It provides suggestions for interventions based on the age of the infant in weeks. So for touch, hearing, sight, smell, and movement and body awareness. Those are the five categories. And it's a really incredible program for understanding yourself week by week, what's developmentally appropriate for a baby, but also for parents. It's really developed for parents to see like, okay, my baby's 29 weeks now. What can I do to help support their development? I think that's great too, because I think that that is something that is maybe even worth looking at for the exam, because we always talk about this is that we can't find abnormal until we know what normal is. So we have to understand, and especially in a situation where most babies aren't out of their mother at 29 weeks. So we don't have a great understanding as we, as in people that don't work in the NICU, don't have a great understanding of what a 29-week normal, if you want to say, quote unquote, looks like and what to expect at that age. And so again, looking at the exam, and I know people get stressed because there's so much to cover, but you probably kind of need to know in those early stages, what is a little bit developmentally appropriate to a address the concerns that you have as a physical therapist. So I definitely think that that's a reasonable thing to kind of pay attention to. So what are some of the other like common things that we're looking at in the NICU in terms of kind of diagnoses, things that you're seeing? Absolutely. So prematurity, as you might guess, is one of those really, really common reasons that babies end up in the NICU. It's rare that a baby born, you know, before 35 weeks does not spend a little bit of time in the NICU. But prematurity leads to all kinds of other diagnoses. So we'll talk about those next. But one of the ways that we classify babies is by birth weight. And this is in your Campbell chapter as well. But I like to say it, you know, everyone learns in different ways. So extremely low birth weight, you would hear somebody in the NICU call those babies ELBW. It's like the silliest acronym, but extremely low birth weight babies are below 1,000 grams, and that's about two pounds. So I give pounds just because sometimes when you think, oh, 1,000 grams, 
that might not mean something to you in your brain, but if you think a thousand grams is about two pounds, that might help jog your memory. So very low birth weight, which is next, VLBW, is between 1,000 and 1,500 grams, so around three pounds. And then low birth weight, LBW, is between 1,500 and 2,500 grams. So up to five and a half pounds is considered low birth weight. As you can imagine, the lower the birth weight, the more severe the outcomes. Not always, but frequently. The first diagnosis that I wanted to talk about, or the first medical condition that I wanted to talk about, is pain. Because most babies in the NICU will undergo some type of pain, regardless of what their diagnosis is. So how do you note pain behaviors in a patient who can't tell you how they're feeling? You know, we think about this in geriatrics a lot. In inpatient, we talk about this a lot. Um, but especially for the NICU baby who does not have the same cues, even as a term baby, it's really important for us to really hone in on what those behaviors might look like. The density of receptors on a neonate is crazy. So compared to an adult body, neonates are feeling pain to a higher degree because of the density of the receptors on their body. One study that I read note, noted that neonates have a really tough time distinguishing between pressure and pain up until 35 weeks gestation. So thinking about the pathways, that means that if a baby is born at 22 weeks, which is now when we're starting to resuscitate babies the earliest, that that's 13 weeks of internalizing potential painful stimuli every three hours for their whole life. And that is all they've ever known. So if you think about their skin, which is not fully developed, their skin will have tape and leads and lines and stickers all over it. And sometimes when you take those stickers off, the skin sloughs off with it. And I've seen this so many times. In fact, one of my absolute favorite patients of all time had this happen. She was born at 22 weeks and six days. I'm going to use names because I like to put a name to the case, but it's not the real name of the patient for confidentiality, obviously. So this patient, Emma, was born at 22 weeks and six days, and she had femoral, she had a fem line, so a femoral line. She ended up getting neck, necrotizing enterocolitis, and we'll talk about that. So she ended up needing an ostomy bag and her wounds ended up dehissing multiple times. She was so small and her skin was so thin when she was born that every time you put a lead on her, so the EKG leads or ECG leads that um, tell us about her vitals, would if every time you took one off, her skin would come with it. So it was just really, really hard and horrible for the nurses taking care of her. And as she grew, she ended up with where her femoral line was, the skin ended up um, connecting a little bit too tight. It was almost like a burn scar where you could see that cording of the tissue. And then her, where she had her leads was just this, it just looked like a giant scar all over her body. 
And then where she had her ostomy and her fistula, she ended up with a shark bite wound. So the it looked like a line with the little lines through it, and it was just completely dented into her stomach. She was a very happy little baby, but her skin was extremely affected by this. And can you imagine how much pain she endured with all of those things? So one of our primary roles as physical therapists in the NICU is to mitigate pain that our patients are inevitably going to go through. And they are trying desperately to tell us what they're feeling with their vitals, with their autonomic stability, that foundation in this inactive theory of development. So I'll get to that when we talk about non-pharmacological pain management in a little bit, a little bit later. All right. Well, we are looking forward to that. Do we want to talk a little bit about all the pulmonary stuff that goes on in the NICU? Yeah, absolutely. So this is super common. Respiratory distress is, it happens in about 50 to 60% of babies born before 29 weeks. And about 10% of all premature babies will have some level of respiratory distress. The thing is that the lungs are immature and there's not enough surfactant production. So this results in increased surface tension in the lungs. The alveoli will collapse. You'll get atelectasis and decreased lung compliance. So that surfactant really allows the alveoli to stay open with less pressure. We need surfactant. The lack of surfactant increases pulmonary artery pressure that leads to right to left shunting of blood. And that ventilation perfusion mismatch is going to be the thing that really affects the baby's lung compliance. So what you're going to see clinically is grunting, retractions. You might see tracheal tugging. You might see retractions lower in the ribs. You might see nasal flaring. You'll see cyanosis, that blue color. And those are the babies who are really going to have the greater oxygen requirements. So higher needs for their O2s to maintain stable oxygen levels. A lot of those babies are given steroids. And some of them are what you might hear referred to as surfed in the NICU by other providers. But that all that means is that they intubate, they give surfactant, and then they extubate. And they hope that that intervention is enough for the infant's lungs to develop and support the baby breathing throughout their lives. Maybe they surf the baby and then add some CPAP to keep their lungs open. And maybe even they just do a little high flow nasal cannula to kind of open things up for them. And we will talk a lot about just cardiac conditions. This is mostly just for our listeners in our episode the next week, or we have things are getting a little mixed up, but we definitely talk about that more. So if we haven't talked about it yet, it's coming. If this is after that, then we already talked about some of that. So this just ties really great into a lot of that knowledge and understanding of what's happening when our heart has to work really hard and when our lungs are not having what they need. Absolutely. So another super common thing that you might see that results in respiratory distress is meconium aspiration. And meconium aspiration is a assumed diagnosis that first poop is a dark, tarry, thick substance made up of the amniotic fluid that the baby has been taking in throughout their gestation. If the baby is term or at least close to term, 
having difficulty breathing and there's meconium in the amniotic fluid, that's what gives the assumption that they aspirated some meconium. They also will usually have rails or ronchi on auscultation and they'll have hyperinflated lungs when you look on x-ray. So that meconium aspiration diagnosis is assumed, but it has all of these things that you're looking for. Is that probably one of the major reasons that a term or like older baby is in the NICU, would you say? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it could be a baby who has had absolutely no complications throughout their pregnancy, but for some reason there's meconium in the amniotic fluid when they're born and they end up with respiratory distress and on CPAP for a few days in the NICU. So talking more about those cardiac conditions, I know that you'll go over them in a different episode. So we see babies with tetralogy of Fallot, a PDA. PDAs are super common in the NICU, a patent ductus arteriosus. You might see pulmonary atresia, coarctation of the aorta. I've seen hypoplastic left heart syndrome and a bunch of other cardiac conditions. But I thought maybe we could spend a little bit more time talking about neuro. I think that that's a great idea. We do talk in depth about all of those, pretty much any of the cyanotic defects, we kind of deep dove into them. So I feel like people will feel pretty confident with their cardiac conditions. But neuro is probably huge. So I think we should definitely spend some time there. And it's also really common in babies who are born prematurely, even if there's no other problem with them when they're born, even if there's nothing else that is problematic when they're born, they might end up with an interventricular hemorrhage after they're born. So you can see babies that have IVH, interventricular hemorrhage, or periventricular hemorrhage. And it's really important to be aware that the grade of IVH doesn't necessarily link to the functional outcome for the patient. But I'll go through the grades so that you can hear them through your mind, but it might be helpful to do this with the Campbell chapter in front of you. Grade one is isolated to the germinal matrix. Grade two would be normal sized ventricles in the subependymal germinal matrix and will rupture through the ependyma into the lateral ventricles. So it is the grade two is kind of the more complicated one of all four. Grade three is acute ventricular dilation. And then grade four will spread to the periventricular white matter. But I like to give this example. This won't necessarily be how it is on the test, but in real life, in my experience, I had in the same week, I had a patient with a grade one IVH who ended up with cerebral palsy diagnosis. And I had a patient with a grade four IVH who ended up typically developing with a, a couple of sensory things. So the grade does not link to the functional outcome all the time. The other thing that is commonly tested, it's also tested on the certified neonatal therapist exam a lot because it is very common the periventricular leukomalacia, PVL. It's usually caused by decreased cerebral blood flow 
white matter injury, which leads to periventricular necrosis and the formation of cysts. And it's the leading known cause of CP. That's something that I love about talking about the NICU to pediatric therapists is that lots of your patients were in the NICU. So it gives you this idea of what they experienced before they came to see you when they're a six-year-old with CP. I think that that is such a great thing to remember. I think one from a trauma-informed care therapist, right? Or a trauma-informed outlook, um, but also just thinking about all of that. I am going to link it back to our episode that we talked with Marissa about early intervention. And this kind of ties into that as well. And we, Marissa and I, she was the early intervention therapist, did an episode where we went through a paper that was published basically talking about the importance of early identification of cerebral palsy and how we as therapists also do a better job of that. So all of this stuff kind of ties together, right? You have to put all of these things that you know about a patient and start to come up with those kind of clinical findings of how to do it. Because also the the test questions are hard. And Emily and I talked about this before we started recording, but Sarah and I's test questions that we've come up with are probably not to the level and intensity because the level and intensity of the test questions is, is probably beyond what I can even write without help and someone vetting them. But we really need to think about some of the questions might be tying all of these things together. A patient that was in the NICU, now you're seeing them in an early intervention or the patient was in the NICU and now you're seeing them in your outpatient clinic. This is what happened to them there. This is what you're seeing now. So bringing all of these things together and making sure that you are able to answer a question. And then I always say on top of all of that, there's lots of people that listen to this podcast that are just interested in pediatric therapy. So some of this is also just about being a really good physical therapist as well. And we all win if we're better physical therapists. So if that's all that you you get from this, I'm happy to help with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing about PVL that I want to make sure that is highlighted just for the purposes of the exam is that it can lead to visual deficits and then cognitive and motor deficits as well. But that vision piece is important when you think about PVL causes those cysts. And depending where on the location of the cyst, it can lead to all these different issues. Um, it also, because of the region that this usually takes place in, those long descending motor tracks travel from the motor cortex to the spinal cord. And that is why PVL can really impact motor performance. Make sure you're comfortable with all the tracks of the spinal cord. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on, let's talk about HIE. There have been a couple of recent studies on HIE and holding babies, so I'll talk about that at the end, but HIE is hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So ischemia, remember, this is decreased blood available to perfuse the brain, and hypoxemia is decreased oxygen in the blood. So ischemia, brain, hypoxemia, blood. That leads to basically... Both of those things together leads to not enough oxygen and glucose to the nervous tissue. 
And this is one that always puts up a red flag for me in terms of trauma, because it is commonly associated with a traumatic birth of some kind. Not to say that a premature birth isn't traumatic, because I'm sure it is. But in this case, I'm talking about a birth that is going along fine, and then something happens. So a prolapsed cord. And if any of these things, if you don't know what they are, you can look them up. A prolapsed cord is the umbilical cord comes out before the baby, and that can be extremely dangerous in terms of the baby getting enough blood from the placenta. A placental abruption is usually extremely bloody, and that's one of the leading causes of HIE. And then asphyxiation around the time of birth. So if the cord is around the neck way too tight and the provider can't release it, this is a tricky one because the cord is almost always around the neck of the baby. So when you read that in someone's chart, it, it may not have impacted the oxygen to their brain at all, but that's in a non-complicated birth. It can be a, not a big deal at all, but if it's too tight or if it's around twice and it's actually asphyxiating the baby or affecting the trachea, then that can be one of the causes of HIE. Hypotension during birth insulin-dependent diabetes, and cardiac arrest, baby or mom, during the delivery. I'm just going to be the person that's here to say that I had no idea that the cord was frequently wrapped around a neck. So I always learn something every single time I do anything, any episode, I always learn something. So, so far, that's I've definitely learned that. I did not realize that that was a fairly common occurrence. Very common. And most providers, OBs and midwives are super comfortable. After the head comes out, they always check and see, is there a cord? And if there's a cord, they just will slowly kind of move it out of the way and get it over the head. And usually it's not a big deal. Here I am learning. I know. Right. Perfect. (laughs) These babies with this loss of blood to their brain when they really, really need it tend to be cooled. So that whole body hypothermia, that's really important to remember. They also might need ventilation. They also might need seizure medication. But the cooling is just not to give you a pun, but it's so cool that it works (laughs) because these babies sometimes end up with absolutely no functional deficits whatsoever. That's amazing. Yeah. So up to 30% of infants who have a moderate HIE will manifest bilateral CP with upper and lower extremity involvement. And clinically, in in the moment when you're seeing this baby, they might look lethargic. They'll have high tone, so HIE, high tone, seizures, and feeding difficulty. And that feeding difficulty can be from a whole host of things, like maybe they're too lethargic to feed. Maybe they don't have the coordination to feed. Maybe they are too high tone in their jaw to feed. So it's really complex. Is there anything else you want to know about HIE before I move on? Yes. So I'm never afraid to admit when I don't know things because I think that's the only way we learn and we grow. So I thinking about like intraventricular hemorrhage, like we're diagnosing that via MRI, correct? Yes. PVL, we're diagnosing that via MRI, correct? Yes. HIE, how are we diagnosing that? Is that via MRI as well? Or how do they know? I mean, I see what it manifests as, but is there like a formal like diagnosis of that? So 
in my experience, because of the circumstances around the birth, that's where HIE, there's a, a specific um, like checklist that you have to pass to be cooled, basically. So if you are lethargic enough, if you have high enough tone, if your vitals are doing a thing, if you, you know, there's like really specific things that will qualify you for cooling. Okay. And I can give you those resources. No, that's super interesting, but it's mostly like a, if the birth and the child looked like this, then we're going to go ahead and cool and mm -hmm. hopefully, and then long-term though, is there anything that we see on, like, let's say we are now in the 30% of infants that are manifesting in some sort of cerebral palsy. Are we seeing MRI changes with those children or are we again, just calling it HIE because we had all of these factors present at the birth and that the child presented with. And then I'm just interested if they have abnormal MRIs or if this is a case where it's more of a clinical presentation. No, they'll also do an MRI and make okay. sure they see something on the image. So I have a patient who did get a diagnosis of HIE and he was cooled. And what ended up happening was the provider said, oh, he looks great, actually. He's, there's no risk of CP, you know, we're not worried about his development, but let's just, you know, do a follow-up because he was in the NICU and they followed up with an MRI at three months, at six months, just to make sure. And they did find changes on his MRI. So they were able with that to have him qualify for services because he was in the NICU and he had those results on the MRI. So he did get early intervention services. I'm interested to know if he like went on to have like a very, like any mild deficits or, you know, just because that would be such a perfect situation of early intervention, really catching and maybe something very mild, but still very important. Yes, he did. So this is a case where he got services right away because his parents had really good advocates and were really good advocates for their son. And he was able to come to this place where he was almost walking. He was delayed in all of his milestones, but just a little bit, just enough, you know, to qualify. And when he got to walking, it was just this like big push to try and help him reach that milestone. But because he had those early intervention services, he was able to walk and he has, at this point, he's three and he has no, he's, you know, caught up in terms of his gestational age and everything and his function and development. And he looks great. I just wish that it was always like, I just wish that those little moments could just continue to support physical therapy. I think that those are the things that we're all trying to do with this big push for early intervention. So I feel like it warms my heart to know that like those little moments are starting to catch up and hopefully help more kids. Yeah. Something that happened with him as well, that research article I mentioned, they used to say that when a baby is being cooled, they're not able to be held by their parents because they're being cooled. So there's a blanket that's a cooling blanket and they sedate the babies. They give them pain medication. It's not, it shouldn't be painful for them. Um, however, 
the parents aren't able to hold the baby. So that is a huge red flag again for me in terms of trauma, because not only did you have something happen like a prolapsed cord and you, you know, the whole team freaks out and then you freak out and then your baby gets taken to the NICU. Um, but then you can't hold your baby. And so I not only think of the trauma that the parent is going through, but also the baby who is a biologically human mammal and really should be in skin to skin on their parent as soon as they're born. And so having that like moment of cooling and separation is really hard. But this research study is showing that holding in the cooling blanket is okay and it doesn't heat them up enough for it to matter. So this family also was able to hold their baby in the NICU when they were being cooled. That's amazing. How long is the cooling process? The cooling process takes about 72 hours. And then after those 72 hours, babies are gradually rewarmed over at least four hours. So they don't just take everything away right away. They rewarm them and kind of bring them back up to, to temperature. But that's three days of not holding your baby. You yeah, know? that's a lot. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was reflux because two thirds of healthy babies will have some form of gastroesophageal reflux. So pretty much every single patient I saw in the NICU had some level of reflux and reflux is not necessarily an impairment. Like we all have a little bit of like, oh, I ate too much. I have a little heartburn, right? Something came up and most babies just go around their merry way spitting up throughout the day. We've seen that, you know, babies kind of just like bleh, and then they're spit up everywhere. But the what's happening is that their lower esophageal sphincter, that sphincter that goes from the esophagus into the stomach, allows food to just come right back up. It's like it opens up really easily, especially if they overeat and then food just comes back up. But for some babies, it's immensely uncomfortable and it really impacts their ability to sleep which impacts their brain development. And some babies will be laying there, they'll have reflux, and then they'll aspirate the reflux, and it might be silent. So they might be having this silent reflux, and then a little aspiration, and then all of a sudden their oxygen saturations will dip. And that alerts everybody that something's wrong, but it can also lead to a whole number of sequelae. And a lot of the times, it ends up being something that keeps a baby in the NICU because it can't be managed. They just have to grow out of it, which is the worst thing that you could possibly tell a parent. <laughs> so Ellie is a patient that I had and she had this exact thing happen to her. She was otherwise very stable, but just all of a sudden while she was sleeping, her oxygen saturation would dip and it would lead she would usually hold her breath and it would lead to a whole slew of people coming over to her bed and she just was not safe to go home and it kept her in the NICU for so long until she got a swallow study and they were able to see that she was aspirating when she was eating and so they assumed that she was also aspirating when she was sleeping and it can be just really really confusing for providers and for parents when these sorts of things happen, but they were able to change the way that she was eating and change the thickness of the food that they were giving her. And she stopped doing it and was able to go home. 
Next, we're going to talk about neck. So this is necrotizing enterocolitis. It's so, so devastating. Basically, babies are at risk for neck during the first six weeks of life. And usually when they're below 2000 grams and they're more likely to get it at the hospital because there's a lot of other stuff going on, but essentially part of the bowel dies. And I have had patients who have been full-term babies and gone home, given just one bottle of formula and ended up with medical neck, which means they ended up back in the NICU and they were able to be given intravenous antibiotics to treat their neck. But that is really rare. It's much more common for it to be a premature baby who starts to show signs of neck. So a lot of times you might see a provider look with a flashlight on the baby's belly and it'll look a little bit gray and the belly might be hard. And in that case, they make the baby NPO so the baby can't eat anymore. And they're put on TPN and IV antibiotics and sometimes a repogal to decompress the abdomen. And if on x-ray there are fixed and dilated loops or a perforation, then the baby will require surgery like really quickly and end up with an ostomy bag and sometimes a fistula before they are reanathemosed. So one of the patients that I saw that was just such a good example of the importance of physical therapy in the NICU was Jordan. She was born at 30 weeks and she ended up living past the six week mark. So everyone thought she was in the clear for NIC. And then all of a sudden, as we were doing infant massage, I noticed that there was a little bit of a hardness to her abdomen that I hadn't felt before. And the mom also noticed because we had been doing massage together as an intervention. And we talked to the nurse and the nurse looked with the flashlight and said, you know, that looks kind of like a loop. This looks, you know, and so we got the entire medical team involved and we were able to catch it. But she was one of those patients who needed surgery. And she had an ostomy bag and a fistula, and they had to refeed her through her ostomy bag. So it was a lot of tape on her small abdomen. It was a lot of time that the nurse had to take. And her wound was so large that it ended up dehissing. So there was just a lot of wound care, a lot of um, trying to make sure that she was getting the care that she needed, but it took a long time. And in the NICU, you do not want to take a long time to see your patient. You want to try to be really efficient, but also really gentle with your handling. So as a physical therapist, I made sure that during every time that she had wound dressing changes and ostomy bag changes, that there was somebody there from our team to be able to be an extra set of hands for containment and to just be there as somebody with safe touch during something that was presumably very painful for her. And I know that this is something that Campbell talks about in their book of kind of that, I'm going to maybe say clustered care. Is that the yeah. term? 
So making sure that we're being thoughtful, because that is such an important component, I think, to the NICU, that Mm -hmm. it definitely comes up a lot in Campbell in understanding that you are not a single unit of your team. You are not the physical therapist, but you are part of this broader team and you need to be communicating and coordinating as much as possible to make sure, like you said, that we're not over-touching them and that we're making sure to A, be supportive and give the right supports, like you said, when they're undergoing some of these more traumatic type experiences like the containment. So make sure that all of these words are feeling familiar to you. I know that there's an APTA fact sheet that talks about containment. I know it comes up in Campbell. So these are the things that we definitely need to be making sure that we're really comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And care times is another thing to be familiar with. Clustered care is um, just the idea of care happening all at the same time. But a care time is like, this is when the nurse is going in and therefore that's when everyone wants to go in. So if you can put yourself in the shoes of a nurse, you should probably be getting there before the care time so that you can provide your intervention in a way that doesn't get in the way of the nurse. And in our unit, our policy was to always do a diaper change, a pulse ox switch. So the pulse oximeter would be switched from foot to foot every care time and a temperature for the baby because you don't want to work with a baby who's not the right temperature. So it's really important for you to know also. And then diaper changes are a really, really incredible way for you to get to know the baby's motor skills without having to just do a specific test. So being really versatile in your ability to see a patient and make an assessment based on while you're doing a diaper change, what does, what does their motor planning and coordination look like? Perfect. I love that. Let's talk about neonatal abstinence syndrome, because this is another one that I feel like is really specific to the NICU. And sometimes these babies, after they go through withdrawal, they just go home and then maybe a number of years later, you might see them in outpatient with sensory or different things going on. So with neonatal abstinence syndrome is withdrawal from any number of drugs, including opioids like heroin or methadone, hydrocodone, oxycodone, benzos, even antidepressants and antipsychotic medication, which can just be devastating to a mother. Some patients I've had were told that their antidepressants would not affect their babies, and then they're shocked to have a baby going through withdrawal. The Campbell chapter rightfully discusses other comorbidities that you might see with a baby with NAS, including violence, lack of prenatal care, polysubstance abuse, and poor nutrition. But I would caution anyone when working with this population to make any type of assumption because we just don't know everyone's story. These babies really need decreased sensory input and positive touch. So much positive touch. They need all the positive touch. And they also need their birthing person, their mom, their parent. Physiologically, she is the best person to soothe her baby. And our role should be to keep them together as much as we possibly can. Facilitating that bonding and attachment and allowing the mother to be empowered to care for her baby 
if everything is safe and that is what she hopes for because I've been in a lot of situations where it's already known that it will be an adoption situation, for example, but getting whoever is going to be caring for that baby in there as quickly as possible is huge. And then decreasing the sensory input. And it's also our job, we're mandated reporters, right? So it's our job to note in those interactions, if we're there with the parents facilitating that bonding and attachment, it's our responsibility to note, is there something that we need to talk to a social worker about in the way that the parent is behaving or the things that they're saying? And do they need more support? Maybe they need more support in terms of their confidence in their ability to care for the baby. You know, I've had patients who would say things like, I just don't think that I'm going to be able to keep her alive, you know, and just very honestly and openly sharing their fears. And that's just a person who shouldn't be left alone with that fear. You know, they need to be empowered and it's not our job. We're not psychologists, right? It's not our job to do that piece, but it's our job to teach them what are the functional things that they can get good at, like a diaper change or providing infant massage and touch and soothing. And when you teach a parent like, oh, look at your baby. They're, they're not crying anymore because you're rocking them and they're really enjoying that. They're really enjoying you. That's so empowering for a parent to hear, you know? So retinopathy of prematurity is super common in babies born prematurely. Phase one of ROP is delayed growth of the retinal blood vessels. Phase two is hypoxia created during phase one, which stimulates the growth of new blood vessels. So for this, outcomes can be nearly normal vision to total loss of vision, and we just don't know quite yet. There are five stages of ROP, and the fifth stage is complete retinal detachment. So one of the things about ROP in the NICU is that babies who are at risk for ROP generally get eye exams every other week. Every NICU has their own schedule, of course, but that's what I've experienced. And eye exams can be unbelievably traumatic to both baby and parent. Babies have to be swaddled tightly and their eyes are opened with a metal tool that keeps the eye open while the ophthalmologist is putting a camera on their eyeball. And the ophthalmologist insists that the drops that they use numb the tissue, um, but babies scream throughout these exams. So this is another opportunity for a physical therapist to get involved and provide some of that non-pharmacological pain management that we've been talking about. The other thing to keep in your mind is that increased levels of oxygen can lead to high incidence of ROP. So if you have a baby who's dinging and they're dinging because their oxygen is at 99% or 100%, they've been put in a range that's appropriate for them and they're over that range, that could be one of the things that leads to an increased incidence of ROP. So ignoring those bells is never a good idea. Always ask questions. I think that that's such an important thing to remember for sure. And I, I mean, put that into another thing that I did not know that increased, you know, you never think about more oxygen necessarily being a bad thing. So something to really think about that, that's actually a risk factor for retinopathy of prematurity. Totally. 
Totally. Another one that is kind of, here's a bonus for your IVH section. If you lift the baby up by their feet when you're changing the diaper, and if you lift them up too high, you might be increasing the blood flow to the brain and that can cause an IVH. Not to blame anybody, but that is one of those things that you really need to think about how you're doing a diaper change in the NICU. And we are just really, really, really gentle with the amount of lifting we're doing. And we always teach parents to never, ever lift at the feet. Which is something that's so important because that's just a really typical way, right? If you have a very typically developing term child, that's probably what you're doing. But much like when we talk about osteogenesis imperfecta, also another diagnosis where you absolutely don't do that. You know, these are the little things too, I think. One, when it comes to the tests that are kind of like you might not think about, but are important. But also I feel like this is what makes someone an expert in pediatrics, right? Because if you only work in outpatient, you can still probably pass this exam, but do you have this like overarching concept of what it's like to be a practitioner in all of these different areas? And it's those types of things that this is a very different environment. It's almost its own specialty area, which I mean, you're kind of your own specialist in this because you're a NICU specialist. And it's its own area that all of these different types of considerations that you might not think about that are very, very important. Mm -hmm. I always tell parents to try to get a laugh out of them. I always say, I know that the goal is to keep the feet out of the poop. So I'm going to show you how we can do this without causing any issues for your baby and with protecting their joints and, you know, all that. Yeah. I love that. So the last one that I want to talk about is hyperbilirubinemia, because when you think about a baby with too much bilirubin in the blood, that's what makes them kind of yellow. And Billy is the breakdown product from hemoglobin from the red blood cells. So the risk with too much Billy in the blood is Kernicterus, which is bilirubin depositions in the brain, which can lead to permanent neurological damage and sometimes even CP. So we take this one super seriously and babies are placed under lights. This is another one that can be really traumatic because I have seen a lot of families take their sweet newborn healthy baby home and then have to come back to the hospital because their baby's too yellow and they need lights. But when a baby's under the lights, they have these little goggles on their eyes to protect their eyes. And parents are told if your baby knocks the goggles off, then they could like blind themselves looking at these lights. So parents are, you know, watching their babies like a hawk. They can't sleep. And then they have to leave and trust that the nurse is going to be paying attention and that the goggles aren't going to fall, you know. So it can be really stressful for parents to have their babies under lights. The other thing is, the point of being under lights is to have as much skin exposed as possible. So babies who are under lights typically are not swaddled and parents are always telling me, oh, I think my baby's cold <laughs> and the baby's crying and can't be soothed because they can't be contained. Now, as a physical therapist, you are uniquely positioned to be able to find a way to get this baby contained, but still have the benefits of the lights. So there are some NICUs where they will use a little bit of saran wrap because it's see-through. You also, there are these tools that are created specifically for positioning babies under Billy lights that are a little 
sort of paper thin fabric or paper thin um, paper almost. It's like a, a specific tool. Anyway, the babies will be put in there and then it's a really thin piece that goes over the arms and a thin piece that goes over the legs to try to keep them contained. So still going back to like that concept of containment is so important for so many different things and the way we need to think about how to do that in these unique scenarios, you know, where we have to kind of almost be creative, I think. And I mean, now in this world, I feel like there's even more like fancy little tools that you can probably buy and have. But, you know, back in the old days, they probably were very creative in some of these places to try to get all of this stuff. But I think we did a really great job kind of breaking down the main diagnoses that people should be familiar with in the NICU. I think you need to make sure you have all of these kind of in your brain that you kind of understand what you're looking for, what might indicate that, all of those types of things. I think we kind of, we didn't really touch on it, but understanding normal values, especially within this population, which now normal values are going to be very specific towards neonate normal values. So I think making sure we have a really good idea of that and then just understanding how traumatic this is for the baby and for the parent and everybody involved and that this is such a hard thing. And then that that child's probably going to go on and maybe they don't need intervention in the future. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's they're older and, and something different happens and that this might be still relevant information. Or maybe this is a child that goes through the whole pipeline of early intervention, school-based therapy, outpatient therapy, and all of these things still kind of come into play and are very important to understand. So thinking about the underlying medical diagnosis, now let's walk through kind of a physical therapy examination of a child in the NICU now that we know that background. Great. So of course, I'm going to use the ICF model. I'm sure you guys have studied that a lot. (laughs) Sarah and I love the ICF model. We talk about it a lot. Everyone's probably rolling their eyes. It's fine. (laughs) So we'll start by identifying the impairment in the body function and structure that would contribute to the activity limitation and participation restriction, which in this case, if you think about it, this is, I think actually there's a chart in Campbell that takes you through this, but it's like the inability to coordinate their upper extremity movement against gravity to bring hands to midline for self-soothing and state regulation for interaction with the caregivers. So it it goes through everything and it's really easy to fit the NICU into the ICF model in that way. So then you're also gonna look at the developmental status of the baby. So like we talked about earlier, you need to know what is typically developing in order for you to determine that something is not typically developing. What is typical muscle tone for the specific age range? And I'll give you that a little bit later. But the individualized response to stress is something that you're also going to be looking at and the baby's ability to regulate their own state. You're also going to look for the need for positioning and handling, which I would argue every baby in the NICU needs skilled positioning and handling because they're in the NICU and there's a reason that they're there and There's a reason that they're being separated from their parent. 
So, and there's no rule book for parents. They come in knowing absolutely nothing. And a lot of parents I've actually talked to of first time parents have said like, man, I'm so glad that I had the NICU nurses and the NICU physical therapists and the NICU occupational therapists, because I knew how to take care of my baby and read their cues better than any of my other friends who had newborns. So it can be just really valuable. Um, and then finally, you want to look for environmental adaptations that you can make to optimize the baby's growth and development. And by the environment, I mean the bells dinging all the time, the light in the room, the sound in the room, the amount of parental involvement. Like how can you create an environment for your patient that will optimize their outcomes? So for state regulation, this is one that is really, really important. And we are going to go through those typical values. So there are four different types of state regulation, autonomic, motor, behavioral, and social or attention. So that really fits well into the synactive theory. If you're paying, if you're following along, <laughs> we so, are following along. <laughs> We're going to be so good at this theory. Right. So for autonomic stability, babies in the NICU will surprise you and their heart rate will be between 120 and 180 beats per minute. And you'll think, oh my gosh, it's so fast. But that's exactly what we want to see. So I'm not really concerned, even if I see 190 sometimes. Um, when I'm seeing 190, I have some question marks if the bell's not ringing. Um, but that's babies' hearts beat really fast. And then they're breathing between 40 and 60 breaths per minute. And in real life, not on your exam, you might see babies breathing faster and have providers not concerned whatsoever just because of the diagnosis that the baby has. But typical breathing for a neonate is between 40 and 60 breaths per minute. That's really what you want to see. You would like to see oxygen saturation above 95% with no oxygen requirement. Um, and really like 98% is ideal. But if you're seeing 89%, that is something where you want to ask questions, unless it's a cardiac patient, which you'll go over in the episode on cardiac stuff, because some cardiac patients have a really specific range that their heart can handle in terms of oxygenation of their blood. So you also want the temperature of the baby between 36.5 and 37.5 degrees Celsius, and most NICUs function in Celsius. And then another part of autonomic stability is the baby's skin color. So they will go from this sort of pale to mottled, maybe even gray, and then blue. <laughs> and if you're getting to that point, then you know that there's something going on. But babies in the NICU change color so fast. And what you're looking for for autonomic stability is a pink color that's not modeled. And if you don't know what modeling looks like, I would look it up because it's when you see a picture of it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that sort of white base with a red um almost like a spider web. I spider mean, web. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. So almost like a spider web on top. And the, um, sometimes you'll see it in a typically developing newborn and it just means they're cold and it's their skin's reaction to that. Um, so 
really making sure that you understand what that looks like, but also that it is an indicator of stress and it's an indicator of potentially temperature issues and something to watch for changes. You also want to look at their respiratory efforts. So do you see that tracheal tugging? Do you see any retractions? Do you see nasal flaring? Um, it doesn't matter if they're breathing at 60 breaths per minute, but they look like it's really hard for them to breathe. So making sure that that's part of your exam. And then how's their digestion? If you're not the one changing the diaper, how is their urine output and their stooling? Um, but understanding all of these things is so much easier when you're there during the care time and you might be the one taking the temperature and doing the diaper. So you already have a sense of how they handle those basic things that they have to undergo every three hours. Motor state regulation is where we shine as physical therapists, right? This is our thing. So first you want to look at muscle tone and posture at rest. And it's important to know what a 22 to 27 weeker would look like with their muscle tone. So babies usually start out with complete hypotonia and it's our job to know how that changes over time. At around 32 weeks, you will start to see active lower extremity flexion. At around 35 weeks, you'll start to see active upper extremity flexion. And between 37 and 39 weeks, you will start to see trunk and head flexion. One of the things that's really, really helpful resource is the hine or the Dubowitz, because they have those stick figures of um, what the baby might look like in terms of their muscle tone during the specific weeks of development. And that's something that we used a lot in our NICU. You also, in the motor state, want to look for reflexes. So are these reflexes that you're seeing exaggerated or maybe they're not exaggerated? Do you see any clonus? I usually would check a palmar, a plantar, a babinski. Um, but remember that palmar, plantar, and babinski don't even exist until 28 weeks gestation. So it's really important not to rely on reflexes and to know when you are expecting to see them based on the gestation age of the baby. You also want to see reflexes as part of the full picture of the infant. And I know this is something that's really been um, brought to light in the past few years and is really clear in Campbell that maybe they have their palmar grasp after 28 weeks. It's strong. It's impacted by muscle tone. So does it seem to comfort them when you have them grasp your finger? Does the Does their muscle tone change based on if they've eaten or not? Um, and are they, do they seem like they have an exaggerated grasp and then they eat and then they don't have a grasp reflex at all? Is that really going to send up alarm bells or is that just typical? So really get to know your patient is what I mean to say about these reflexes. And then the other thing that happens when a baby is born prematurely is gravity. And it's really, really hard because these babies would have had their entire lives in the womb to develop physiologic flexion. But what happens is if they're born at 24 weeks, then gravity starts to pull back on them 
And that's how you see babies who've developed scapular retractions, maybe asymmetries based on the way they were positioned. Maybe they had a line in a specific spot and it took 12 different providers to place that line. And so they're not going to lose it and they don't want to move the baby. There's so many reasons that babies end up with um, head turn preferences, for example, or um, plagiocephaly or brachycephaly or scaphocephaly. There's so many reasons. Um, and then there's another idea of this flat extended posture. So you'll see external rotation and abduction in the hips, external rotation in the upper extremities. Um, and they just sort of don't have the ability or the strength to bring their hands to midline because their pecs have been stretched out over the course of their life when really they should have been inside the womb getting flexed more and more and more. Remember that extension is a gross motor stress sign. And what is happening is baby is searching for a boundary. So anytime you see a baby finger splay or toe splay, that is a sign of stress. And then if they finger splay and extend through their elbow, they are looking for the boundary of the uterus. And if they don't find it, then it's really disorienting and can be sign that the baby just needs your containment. So I really love the idea of thinking about how babies have this extension reflex. So when they're in the womb, they extend, they hit the uterus, and then they flex. So when we're providing containment, we can allow them to, we can give them a little bit of resistance as they extend. And if you can give them that resistance, they might flex back. And that is a really, really amazing way to help them orient their body in space and to help with their development of proprioception and to help with the development of strength and improved bone density and just so many different benefits. So a little aside for motor state and you are potentially providing containment and getting all the benefits of that while you're doing an assessment of their muscle tone because you're feeling their muscle tone as they resist you. So absolutely. Behavioral state regulation is one of the ones I usually start with when I'm talking to residents because it's easy to see if a baby's asleep or a baby's awake, you know, but we have those states of being a, a, of arousal. So you have deep sleep where a baby is really in their deep wavelength of, of sleep, active sleep or REM sleep, light sleep. This is where you will actually see the eyes moving under the eyelids of the baby. And it's also where you might see those really sweet sleep smiles and parents just love those. So you can always point them out. Those are my then, favorite. I know. <laughs> and then you'll get into drowsy and then you'll get into quiet awake, active awake, crying, and there you are. So the big thing to remember about behavioral states is, first of all, just know what they all mean. Pretty much anyone who's in pediatrics has heard about these states of arousal, right? Somewhere on our Instagram, I think we have like a chart of this as well. We'll probably share it again this year, just because we usually do with the NICU, but I know somewhere it is. But I definitely feel like in every resource, this is definitely outlined in some sort of a flow chart style. 
Right, exactly. So, but the important thing to remember in the NICU is that you want to see greater than 15 seconds between each of these states as the baby is coming from deep sleep to awake. So if a baby is moving from a deep sleep or even an active sleep to crying, then you know that they need a little bit of assistance with their ability to transition between the states. If they're crying and then all of a sudden they're asleep, same idea. You really want this sort of cycle of state regulation throughout with smooth transitions. And if you're not seeing that, that's an opportunity to help. And there are so many different interventions that we have as physical therapists that can help with creating smooth transitions for babies. Last state is social interaction or attention. When I teach about this, I use a very embarrassing picture of myself because it helps to um, really show what I'm talking about. Because if you think about the attention or the social aspect of this, when a baby is regulated in their social state, they might look like they're coming towards you. So they're looking right at you. Their shoulders are rounded forward. Their hands are at midline and they're maybe even moving towards you. Like there's just this energy about them. But when they're not, when they're dysregulated, then it looks like they're moving away from you. They're turning their head. They're turning their gaze, maybe like actually gaze averting. They're opening up their body away from you. They're really trying to just completely get away from you. And I have a picture of me holding one of my friend's babies, just really trying to get away from me. So um, I think that it just is a really good example. When you look at a baby, does it look like they're turning their head away? Are they shutting their body down by closing their eyes? Um, and one, one example that I use a lot when I'm teaching this is when a baby's eating, a lot of times parents really want to interact with their baby while they're eating. And so they want their baby to look at them, but eating is really hard. They have to coordinate a suck, swallow, breathe reflex that only develops at 34 weeks and takes weeks to be refined. So babies born at 37, 38 weeks can still have a really tough time coordinating their suck, swallow, breathe reflex. And if a baby in that situation shuts down to reorganize, that means that they are shutting their eyes, they're focusing their efforts, they're only doing one thing, suck, swallow, breathe, suck, swallow, breathe, and they can't interact during that time. If you see, but if you see a baby who does that and they can finish their meal and enjoy it and then fall asleep afterwards, that's all wonderful. That means that their social attention is actually intact. If you see a baby who shuts down to dissociate, that means that their social attention state is dysregulated. So what that might look like is a baby who is trying to eat and maybe they're gaze averting, trying not to look at anything and make eye contact with anyone, but then they eventually close their eyes. And then you see on the monitor that their oxygen saturations start to dip. So they're just not even really able to tolerate the feeding at all. Um, and 
I think that is a really, really good um, example of showing you that social interaction when babies are eating because they tend to stop being able to manage their vitals and their autonomic stability changes if they're dissociating. That's super helpful to think about. So another thing that we really want to look at and do in our examinations is bring babies to the floor as soon as is appropriate because we play a critical role with parents in terms of facilitating play and prone positioning. And we want to see what that looks like. We have to do the exam, right? We have to make the assessment. Um, but this is, you know, as babies are getting much older than the premature babies we've been talking about. And then it moves into anything that you would do if you were seeing a one-month-old in an outpatient setting for torticollis. So there's just that inpatient side of things that gets thrown in there. Absolutely. So now we've gone through medical stuff, doing an examination. Now we get to my most favorite thing because this is something that's so critical and it's very overwhelming when it comes to the PCS exam. I'm not going to even lie or pretend that it isn't, but can you take us through just a few tests and measures that are specific to the NICU? Yeah. I like to start with why, why do we need these? So we really want to show objective data and change over time in the NICU, especially because we have to justify the need for our services. And then we can evaluate the outcomes of our specific interventions when we're using outcome measures, which is so valuable to us as clinicians who want to do the best for our patients and grow, you know? And then we also then can identify developmental follow-up needs. So I can use the results of my temp to show an early intervention PT what we were doing when the baby was 34 weeks and the early intervention person can take that on as they're moving on. So it just kind of creates this seamless ability to see change over time. So I mentioned the TIMP. That's my favorite probably for NICU babies. It's the test of infant neuromotor performance, which you can start at 32 weeks and use until about 16 weeks post-term. So four months adjusted gestational age. And I really like it because it has pictures for each item, but it is very, very long and it requires a training. So making sure that you do the training and really like live the test is important when you're doing the temp. It just sort of becomes part of your vernacular when you're in the NICU sometimes. But I think that um, it's probably one of my favorite ones, especially when I was taking babies into outpatient as well. So I could really follow them throughout. Um, another one is the NBO, the Newborn Behavioral Observation System which is a neurobehavioral relationship building tool for a PT to establish rapport with families, which is just such a cool idea and a really, um, I think kind of a newer look at that, especially with some of the older neonatologists, understanding that relationship building with the family leads to better outcomes for the baby. Um, and then the, the Dubowitz and the Hind that I mentioned earlier are incredible tools. And those are both 
accessible. You can Google them and they're free. Um, and the trainings are free as well. Um, but then there are also outcome measures that require certifications and really, really intensive training. So the NIDCAP is one that we talked about a little bit earlier. The NBAS, the Assessment of Preterm Infant Behavior, and the GMA, which is arguably the sort of new hot thing out there, the general movements assessment, <laughs> because I think that more and more NICU therapists that I work with are becoming certified in the GMA because it is so um, sensitive for identifying cerebral palsy. And like we've been talking about, just that early identification and be a being able to be predictive of CP is just incredible. And it's based on these really, really precise movements that babies make and can just be an incredible tool to use. Yeah. Like I said, we did an episode a couple weeks ago where we went through just an article that talked about the GMA and just using it, not even just in the NICU, but even for early intervention therapists, if they're seeing someone um, in their home in that early stage. So I think, again, like you said, it's the new hot thing, but it seems to have a really good research behind it. And anything we can do to get kids services earlier and have some objective data about why we think that they need those services earlier, I think is very, very important. And really, like you said, changes the outcomes. And I think people are starting to see what an effect we can have when we do things earlier. So I think that that's really, really great. Okay. Yeah. I feel like we've made it to the good stuff. So now let's talk through the interventions that we're going to see in the NICU. Sounds good. This is my favorite part. So the role of a physical therapist in the NICU is to screen first for the need for services. And like I said before, this is my spoiler. Most babies who are in the NICU really need us. The other thing that PTs are responsible for is implementing the developmental therapy interventions, right? This is the plan of care. This is all of the things that we're about to talk about. We also will start to incorporate the family on day one, maybe even before, if we can get to them. Because the family is who that baby goes home with. And if they have all the knowledge that we have, then the baby has the best chance of meeting developmental milestones and the best outcomes. It's also our responsibility to collaborate with the nurses and the medical team. And I think to know every person on your team, including the chaplains, social work, everyone that you can possibly meet is really important, probably in any inpatient setting and outpatient setting, let's be real. but that's really, really important in the NICU because we work so closely together and not just closely like because we're working together, but physically we're also shoulder to shoulder next to each other working with a patient because our patients are so small. So we are also going to be consulting to other healthcare practitioners. So for example, at the hospital where I worked, we had a craniofacial clinic. And when I had a patient with a head shape that I was 
questioning craniosynostosis, I called Craniofacial Clinic and got one of their nurse practitioners to come and do her assessment while the baby was still in the NICU. Um, and that baby ended up getting their helmet while they were still in the NICU. And it was amazing. So the other final thing that we're responsible for is discharge planning. So like we've been talking about getting baby services. One of the biggest ethics cases that I was a part of was that case that we talked about a little bit earlier of the baby who had all of the skin conditions and the skin sloughing off because she was born so early. Um, and her case was really complex. Her parents were not very kind to each other. And eventually one of them ended up being sent out of the country. And it was a whole, whole mess for so many reasons. But the reason that I brought in the ethics board was that the parents were refusing for this baby to get trached. And she had been intubated for her whole life, which at this point was about eight months. And if you can imagine trying to do tummy time on the floor with a baby who's intubated, it gets people a little bit freaked out. So I had a lot of support when I worked with this patient. I usually had a student with me as well as an RT, as well as a nurse, so that we could make sure to safely get this patient on the ground. But the reality is, is it's not safe for a patient to be intubated for that long. And it was clear that she was not going to be able to breathe on her own. So getting a trach was the absolute best thing for her function and for her ability to play. And she was starting to become this baby who just wanted to play. And so we were able to bring the family in and talk about what physical therapy would look like for her in the future. It's so hard when you're a parent and you're just sort of focused on this baby in front of you, but you don't really think about like this baby is going to become a kid and that kid's going to get older. And the ability for your child to be able to play is vital for their development. So really taking on the role of the expert in the functional outcome of the baby in the NICU and giving parents what it might look like for their patient or for their baby to sit in a wheelchair or to sit in a kid cart um, that would help to carry all the equipment for them to a physical therapy appointment. And what does physical therapy look like for a baby who has a trach? What does tummy time look like? So we, we did a lot of conversing and then we talked through some videos of um, previous patients who had given me permission to share with other patients thinking about getting a trach. And um, it was just like a really amazing way for the therapy team to be at the forefront of change for this patient and it worked. So she was able to get traked and she had just kept on playing. And I cannot tell you the amount of toys that she brought to her mouth and was just chewing on so much because she had never been able to do that. But we had been working on positive touch around her face the entire time she was intubated. So it was really beautiful to see that outcome.
And really highlighting that going back to the ICF model, right? Like what were we hoping for her, right? Why are we doing all of this? Why are we doing all of these interventions to save her life? It's because the hope is that she gets to participate, right? Like that's our participation is always our end goal. And you know, like you said, when you talk with the family, you have to help them understand what participation looks like and how participation might look different than you imagined, but that it doesn't mean that it isn't still important. So when we're thinking about the test and we're thinking about the exam, it's always coming back, I think, to participation. And like we had talked about earlier, like, what is the underlying concept that the question is asking? And is the family at the center of that? Is the patient at the center of that? And then I'm going to add one more is that is participation at the center of that? Mm -hmm. Totally. So overall, some interventions that you might use as a physical therapist would start with parent education. So diapering, taking a temperature. So taking a temperature without shearing the skin, lifting the arm, putting the temperature probe in, bringing the arm down, and then taking the arm up and removing the temperature probe. That sort of detail for a parent is going to be huge. And maybe even for a new nurse who is used to just pulling that thing out because the skin of our neonates is just not as developed as the skin of a newborn changing the pulse oximeter from side to side. And you can really teach parents how to provide positive touch after you take a sticker off. It's a huge piece of the parent education that we provide. You also are going to be providing containment and flexion generally to these babies. You really want protraction in the scapula and you want flexion and abduction, but not too much abduction in the lower extremities. So really making sure that you are providing that with your positioning and with all the tools that you are giving to the nurses for each patient. You also might be holding a baby's hand. They're going to be using their grasp reflex around your finger, but that can actually be extremely soothing to them and be a non-pharmacological pain management tool. You will be providing vestibular input after 32 weeks. Before 32 weeks, any kind of vestibular input is not appropriate for their brain quite yet. So vestibular input could look like rocking, padding, tapping, anything that is going to move their body in a way rhythmically, we do not need to provide before 32 weeks. We're also going to be reducing the level of sound. So CPAP alone is about 150 decimals and babies who are in the NICU should not have high decimals when they're there. They need to have really, really quiet input. We're also going to be protecting them from light. So cycled lighting usually would start around 32 weeks with dim light. So 12 hours of dim light during the day, 12 hours of darkness at night, which will increase to 12 hours of daylight at 34 weeks and 12 hours of darkness at night. And those two age ranges, I did not see in Campbell. So I'm not sure that you need to know them, but if you work in the NICU, you probably need to know them because they're part of the sense program. Um, and the research really backed up those ages. 
Um, there is research coming out that shows that maybe a little bit before 32 weeks would be good to start cycling light. But the reason for this is that vision is an endogenous thing that develops on its own. It does not require something from outside to come in and help it develop. So if you think about the baby who's born at 28 weeks, if light is coming in to their eyes, they might then look where the light is going and their rods and cones then need to react to that light to create an image for their brain to process. So all of that information has to happen and it may be getting in the way of other senses that are developing like touch and hearing. And so if we can avoid light coming in before 32 weeks, then we can help babies with their sensory regulation. And if we can help these babies not have sensory sensitivity when they're older, that would be amazing. Positioning is a huge one. And usually if the roles are diversified, so PT, OT, and speech are doing different things, the PT is going to be in charge of positioning. So you must have physiologic flexion and alignment. And we might also be the ones who are putting infants prone who have respiratory difficulties because prone has actually been shown to be the best position for babies who are intubated. Or I definitely feel, I feel like COVID kind of brought all of that to like the whole concept of proning, which I think they were doing in the NICU long before COVID, but I, that's where it kind of came into the general media understanding that that's a good position for breathing. I also always highlight here, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but the APTA does have a fact sheet on positioning in the NICU and it actually has some really nice pictures. So I always reference people back to that. I'm, I'm a very visual learner. So um, definitely check that out just for some of those concepts. Like she was talking about, they have a picture for physiological flexion and then they have a picture for the prone position as well. So helpful. Yeah. I love those fact sheets. I will point people to them all day long. There's also the IPAT um, infant positioning assessment tool, which is a free outcome measure that I've used to show that babies need repositioning more frequently or used to show that a baby is not positioned appropriately most of the time. Um, so, and they have really nice pictures as well on the iPad. Another tool that we might use as physical therapists is non-nutritive sucking. So pacifier use basically. But one of the things that is important to note about that is that we are really trying to avoid oral motor dysfunction and we are trying to avoid sensory sensitivity around the mouth and oral aversion. And it is really, really hard to do in the NICU. So the way that we introduce a pacifier is extremely important. And usually it's a tool that might get used for non-pharmacological pain management with, with sucrose. So using sucrose with a pacifier can be especially if the timing is correct. The research behind it says that you should do it at least two minutes before the painful procedure 
and it can be a non-pharmacological pain management tool. Um, some NICUs really overuse it and some NICUs don't use it nearly enough. So it's something to think about. Breast milk is also a really incredible tool. So I always tried to use breast milk before I would use sucrose if it was available. The other intervention that is so, so common, and I'm so glad that it's becoming like the norm for physical therapists is infant massage. There's so much research. And I used to give an entire two hour lecture on the research. So we're not going to do that here. Um, but there are articles behind all of the benefits of infant massage. Some of the benefits just to rattle them off are improved weight gain and growth, decreased length of stay in the NICU, improved bonding and attachment, bilirubin levels. There's not really strong evidence for, but there is a bunch of research studies on that as well. Decreased pain, improved autonomic stability, improved developmental outcomes. It's just, it just goes on. So joint compressions is another intervention that we use a lot. And we actually look at alkaline phosphatate levels to see if babies qualify for a joint compression protocol. And it's really an incredible tool that physical therapists are uniquely positioned to provide. We also are responsible to decrease the stimulation for the baby and facilitate movement patterns that are better for them. Bringing babies down to the floor, depending on their age and their developmental stage and what's appropriate for them. Maybe even moving tummy time is any age babies will be prone, but things like batting at objects that will happen at around eight weeks, correct to gestational age, reaching for objects. Those are things that I know that everyone has the developmental understanding of. So up until that point, we are really working on different positions in the bed. Um, but Tummy time flat on the floor is a really, really exciting and important milestone for babies in the NICU. We're also going to be working on discharge planning and then really, really, really important intervention that we are always responsible for is getting babies into skin to skin. So kangaroo care is the idea of just placing baby chest to chest with the birthing person or with their father figure with a grandparent. I've had families do it with a sibling, which is just so sweet. Um, but the benefits of skin to skin are just so vast. And one of the biggest ones is that they were shown to have more mature neurobehavioral profiles on the NBAS. So skin to skin directly impacts their development. I have one more example that I would love to share of a baby born at 25 weeks, but I wanted to go through really quickly that pain specifically can be addressed and non-pharmacological pain management is all of these things that I'm about to list. So skin to skin is non-pharmacological pain management. Using breast milk or sucrose during a heel stick, for example, or an IV attempt in skin to skin. I've had nurses who are amazing who would do all of the glucose testing in skin to skin or with a physical therapist present. Doing containment, flexion, also non-pharmacological pain management. Hand holding, decreasing stimulation, 
non-nutritive sucking, the parent's voice and the parent's scent are both really, really important tools that we can use. And there are so many different ways that we can do that. But odor and scent is a really powerful tool for newborns because they're biologically created to be able to find the person who's going to give them milk, right? So finally, rocking, singing, tapping, patting, and eye contact are all incredible non-pharmacological tools for pain when age appropriate. So remember we talked about before 32 weeks, not appropriate to do that vestibular input, but after that age, all of those things would be incredibly important. So this baby, we'll call her baby Olive. She was born at 25 weeks and it was one of those traumatic things where there's clearly labor happening at 25 weeks. So this mom is experiencing the pain of childbirth contractions and wondering if everything is okay and goes into the hospital and there was a hand presentation. So they couldn't find her when they did the ultrasound. And when they did a vaginal exam, they saw her hand coming out through the cervix. Scary, right? So they ended up having to life flight her from Northern California to Portland, Oregon, to our NICU and did an emergency C-section and then we had this 25 week baby but there was no actual reason that the labor had progressed like that the baby was very stable and so she only had CPAP she was never intubated and it was amazing so I went and I saw this baby who was 25 weeks old and just on CPAP trucking along really stable and when you see that you you always wonder yeah how long is it going to last? You know, is it going to last? And what I did was I immediately went upstairs to the parents' room and I sat down with them and I laid out the role of a physical therapist in the NICU and how we were going to work together to help support their baby's development. And this is something that I did any chance that I got with especially the babies who are born this early because the parent involvement makes the difference. So this family was, we were very, very lucky that they had the flexibility to stay there because they're from California, you know, a whole state away, but they had the flexibility to stay and they took what I said and did every single thing I asked them to do. So we talked about containment. They were in there for every single care time with the nurses providing containment. We talked about visual development and how important it was to protect her eyes before 32 weeks. And when they had her in skin to skin, they always had something protecting her eyes. We got her in skin to skin as fast as we could, as fast as it made sense for her. And her mom was there every day doing skin to skin all day. And it was just the most amazing look for me from a clinical standpoint at what we're capable of doing as physical therapists and really what families are capable of doing. Because it wasn't the fact that I was there 
twice a week or however often I was able to see her. It was the fact that everything that I said, the family took and implemented. So when the baby was appropriate for infant massage at 32 weeks, the family did infant massage every single day. When the baby was appropriate for a latch attempt, we did the first latch and the ba- and the family attempted latching every single day. So the baby got so much practice and so much positive touch. It was amazing. And that baby went home on room air breastfeeding, which was just the biggest win of all babies in the whole NICU. <laughs> so it's rare that a 25-week baby will go home on room air breastfeeding. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, one, I think you should give yourself credit because you are an amazing therapist. But what I hear from that story too is like education, right? Like you provided family with the correct education in a way that they could understand and in a way that they felt empowered. So one, that education piece. And then two, the family-centered piece, like you made it about them, you empowered them, and you made sure that they knew that they were the most important part. So I think those two things together is what creates good outcomes. And that's why it's... I hope it continues to become such a foundational part of what we do as a practice, because I think it's what really sets us apart in our ability to be able to combine the motor skill piece, which we're good at, and we understand, but it has to be more than that. It can't just be us providing a motor skill. It has to be us providing the education about all of the development and the motor skill to the family to make sure that that's carried through a day, a week, and a lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, the appropriate dosage, there's an amazing article where it talks about dosage for physical therapy in the NICU. So really what they say is every day, every single day, a baby should be seen by a developmental therapist. But if you think about it, I we were never able to see babies every day in the NICU. But that family brought forward everything that we were doing. And that was amazing. And they were so, so lucky that they could do that. But not every family has that privilege. You know, there are lots of families who have a baby, have a couple of weeks off, and then go straight back to working full time so that when their baby comes home, they get to spend time with their baby. And it's really hard. And that is why... Dosage is so important in the NICU that we are able to note with and and personalize everything with the family education that I know this family is going to be here implementing everything every single day. Great, I can reduce my dosage. But for this patient whose family isn't here every day, they should have a higher dosage because they don't have that family support that this other baby has. Right. That's that social determinants of health, right? Like there's going to be different circumstances, but that we shouldn't, that shouldn't change what any individual child receives. Right. And we should have the ability to say, you know, this is a family who their family had to go back to work, but this child could still benefit from these same developmental interventions. It's just this family can't provide that because this is a unique circumstance, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, it's not so unique. (laughs) Right, right. That's actually probably, (laughs) if we were really going to talk about which of those two stories was unique, it was probably the family who was able to be there through the long haul of it, for sure. That's right. Unfortunately. 
Yes. But I mean, an amazing story for little baby Olive. So at the end of the day, that was still one little baby that really got the best outcomes that she could probably get. Absolutely. Awesome. Emily, this was so awesome. I feel like we kind of walked through the whole process. There's definitely a lot more information in Campbell. This is a really long chapter. I think that there's a lot of stuff in Campbell that's maybe a little bit more than we would need to know. I don't know. They go very deep into some of those like neurobehavioral assessments. And I feel like that was the part that really overwhelmed me. So I appreciate your kind of like condensing a lot of that stuff into just like little snippets to just help that memory and that recall. So that was awesome. So you talked a little bit about what you're doing now. Do you want to tell us just another little brief snippet about where people can find you and what you're doing? Yeah, you can find me at BeWellBabyPDX on Instagram or BeWellBabyPDX.com. I am a couple different branches of things that I'm doing. I teach CEU courses on the lactation OT. So I teach an infant massage course for better breastfeeding, basically, to, to help providers learn how to teach families how to give infant massage for better feeding outcomes. I also teach courses on how to give adults massages as well. And I teach at Pacific University doing their massage module for the first year students. And I also teach a class on infant development on lactation OT. And then what I'm really excited about right now is my parent education courses. So those are on my website at bewellbabypdx.com. And it's just a lot of what I have learned throughout the years in the NICU and really relating that to the newborn period for parents and postpartum recovery and so many different topics. Um, I could just continue going on because now I'm seeing the mom and the baby. And I really was seeing this gap in peripartum healthcare that I really wanted to be part of helping close when I started my business. So, And probably such a unique perspective having that very early NICU trauma development concept. So I think that that would be such helpful resources for people. I'm a yeah. mom of two and I was a pediatric PT and I still feel like it was a, a just a train wreck blur moment. So I feel like the more we can support people through all aspects is such a wonderful gift that we can give new moms. So that's awesome. We will link all of that too in our uh, show notes. So that way you guys can easily get to her stuff too. Great. And we'll also link all the other things that I talked about too. I also run a support group for moms. So anyone can come and it is really surprising the number of people who have actually been in the NICU and having someone who understands that world is really helpful with that postpartum support. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emily. And we will see you guys all next time. Bye. It was really, really my pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Pushing Pediatrics today. We hope you found the information shared valuable and applicable to your test preparation and daily practice. Remember, success is a journey and we're committed to supporting you every step of the way.
Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your colleagues. Until next time, you've got this.